This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp and Generate Life Sciences. We are very excited to have them on board making our show a possibility. Welcome to If These Ovaries Could Talk. <laughs> I'm Jamie. I'm Robin. And we're your hosts. Let me show you. It's not your nuclear family anymore. It's not just your mom and dad thing. We're not ruining these little humans. Not for the gay reason. Just because we stick. Oh my God, Jamie. We brought to you this week by the construction happening outside of my house. And every time I'm setting up my equipment, I think they're on lunch break. And then as soon as I hit record, they're not on lunch break anymore, Jamie. It's New York. It's It's just just ever present. Ever present. There's always a building going up. And then you think to yourself, Oh, soon that lane will be free again and they'll be yeah. parking. And then a new no. building goes up. No, and then they're ripping up the sidewalk. Fuckers. I know. Well, I got so the, mad there. I'm sorry. Yeah, you did. <laughs> the construction above my head in the apartment above seems to well, have Are stopped. they doing a full renovation? I don't know what, what the you, hell they're doing. You should go up and find out. <laughs> Hi, what the hell are you doing? No. I'm your new downstairs neighbor. Because you know they hear my kids screaming all the yeah, time. Yeah, so you know I don't they do. That's why. Yeah. Put a face. <laughs> Yeah. No, you got to keep a low profile until your kids are at least seven. Yeah, exactly. So we're just going <laughs> to chill on that one. But it seems like they've stopped. So that's good. Have you seen all my new plants in my apartment? You stopped with the so plants. so many new plants. You guys, come to our live streams and you can see the, the new plant <laughs> behind Jamie. And she put a guitar and she's like, she's like, it's designed. And I was like, is it, Jamie? Is because it? I just got tired of the, the Zoom background being just a blank wall. You know what you notice on the news? Everybody who's interviewed on the news is always in front of a bookshelf. Always, have you noticed always. this? Yeah. You oh, yeah, always yeah. have to have books behind you. It's and like it's always, thing. they're always authors who have their book yeah. prominently displayed. We should, sure. why are we not doing everything in front of our book, Jamie? I don't know. What's wrong with us? Just want to say before we move off the books for one second, we do have a trick where you could get a free copy of our audiobook. And I don't know if I feel like a bad person saying this, but if you've never been an Audible customer for Amazon, then you sign up for their 30 day trial and they give you one book credit for free. Guess what, guys? Then you use it for our book. If these overs could talk the things we've learned about making an LGBTQ family. It's perfect. Right? It's a win win. And then just make sure you, if you don't want to keep that Audible subscription, you got to cancel it within oh, yeah, 30 yeah, yeah. days. Yeah, yeah. I put I put little reminders on my calendar to cancel things. <laughs> I do, too. I do, too. Or I just cancel it right away. But get our book before you cancel it. Yeah, most definitely. We do have to say before we get into the interview, join our Patreon community and help us make the show if you'd like. We've got bonus content there. The video interviews of most episodes and they're dropped a day early and they're ad free, edited free. Now there's construction somewhere around above me. There you okay. go. Spoke too soon. Go to patreon.com slash ovaries talk. Yeah, go do that, guys. Help us. Help us out. Help us make this podcast for you. All right, let's talk about who we're talking. Robin, I'm going to let you do this because uh, Robin so... fangirled a bit. I she did fangirl. Karen Calmaker. Okay, so she is an author of lesbian fiction. I mean, she's won like millions of awards, Golden Crown Literary Award multiple times. She won the Lambda Literary Award, and she's been a finalist multiple times. She's a real writer. Right. She's she, not like us. She no. actually, she's, she does this for a living. She's mm-hmm. written over 30 books. But she's I read amazing. a ton of her books in the 90s, like when I was first coming out, and I've been going back to them recently, and I was, I was so excited when she said yes. Yeah. Robin got a little flustered, I'm not going to lie. Listen, when- shut up. <laughs> When we were putting this interview together. Shut up. But no, she's really amazing. And she's 
a trailblazer. Yeah. She's just amazing. And we're super happy that we got to talk to her. We're we're really lucky. Helen. Helen, wake roll up. Roll it. Roll the tape, Helen. I'm still trying to keep the nice tone with her. I'm Helen. not. I woke Helen. her up before we started the intro and she didn't care. I so. know. Well, we gotta, you have to light a cigarette. She'll stay up longer. Exactly. <laughs> Hi, Karen Kelmaker. Hi, Karen. Hi, it's great to be here. We are so excited to have you here. We really are. And we're going to start with you like we do with everyone with the elevator pitch about yourself. And so I'm going to get my little clock out. Are you ready? Is Are we panicking you already? I'm ready. I'm taking the... <gasps> Take those Calm deep breaths. You seem so very media trained. You have this. All right. You got it. On your mark, get set, go. <laughs> I'm Karen Callmaker. I'm a lesbian. I've been writing women loving women romance for 30 years. My wife and I have been together for 43 years. And we have two adult children that we brought into the world. And I'm their parent by virtue of second parent adoption in California, which became legal. One of the first places in the country to be legal. Wow. wow, that was good. That was quick. That was you concise. covered a lot, Karen. <laughs> really that was did. Really good. I may have practiced. A little bit. <laughs> Just a little. Wow. How, how long have you been with your wife? 43 years. We met in 43. high school. Can, can you tell us something about that's it's good? 43 years? Like, it's like, give us a little, like, we're, we've all been trapped in, in quarantine together. So so that was like, it's good? Yeah. <laughs> it, comes, it comes out okay in the end? We, we've actually, to be stuck in quarantine and Maybe it's a good thing we don't have kids living in the house. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, they've come home and they've stayed for a couple of weeks after we were sure everybody's bubbles were good and all of that. But we have lots of space. We've been actually really lucky. If there was going to be a pandemic, there couldn't have been a better time in our lives for it to have happened. So, you know, we're, we're just getting by. We're making it. We're going to talk more about your books in, in that time period, but we want to start with your family. But before we do, how many books have you written? Somewhere around 30. That's amazing. You do kind of lose track. I mean, I've written 30. Oh, there are people who've written 15, 60 in my genre. And they started a long time after I did. They're just so much faster than I am. But about 30 novels and a couple under another name and just an armload of short stories that are in different compilations and collections. Wow. Amazing. Jamie and I just wrote the one and it nearly killed us. (laughs) Sorry. God bless you for writing these books for us, though. Really, seriously, because these are just a light in the tunnel sometimes for a lot of us. And it's these books are a way for us to realize, oh, I am interested in this. This might be my path, you know? <laughs> or at least modeling some of the ways the path could go forward. Yeah, right. Which is when I started writing, that's what was just missing in, in literature altogether was this idea that you could see in your in books actual depictions of relationships between couples who weren't man, woman couples, Mm -hmm. especially in the early days, you know, two women couples and how they negotiated a relationship Mm -hmm. and and the presumptions that they brought to it and the presumptions they didn't bring to it. Um, Like, you know, know, two women in a household, neither of them presumes someone else is going to take out the trash no, or that someone else is going to do the vacuuming, that someone else is going to pick up the kids at school every day. All that has to be kind of worked out in a way that suits the couple. Mm. Like my wife and I, we have different things that, that we're both good at. Mm-hmm. And she's, she's, more, she's more detailed and will keep herself to a, on top of things. So she does most of our finances, even though I can do it. I tend to be able to tinker with things and get them to work again. So <laughs> if the faucet's leaking, I'm the one who'll go, oh, I think we need a washer. And you know, I'll figure out how to, if I can fix it or we have to call somebody. Mm-hmm. So we, that's why we, we just split it up that way because it makes sense to our skill sets. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't presume she couldn't sometimes use help 
And she doesn't presume that I couldn't sometimes use some help with what I'm doing. So, you know, you just work it out. You, you know, know <laughs> we've been saying that this whole time we've had this podcast, but Karen, I think you just said it way so better much than better. the past two years of us trying to explain that. We're always like, and you don't have to do the rolls, the oh, set rolls and the choose. diapers and the, like, and the way you said it was way better. <laughs> yeah, that was good. I love that. It's true. And it's so true. There's always the, the, you know, if you've raised kids, you, you understand what planned helplessness looks like <laughs> and you, you show them to do something and then they, you say, okay, now you fold the shirt and they go, blah, 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 and it's all wrinkled and they eventually ends up as a ball. And yeah. then they just say, I don't know how to do it. I can't learn. And you're like, yeah, you're going to learn. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm still learning to fold the clothes. It's, it's just a lost <laughs> battle, but let's talk about your family and how, how'd you guys come about? Let's take it back to the beginning. Well, we met in high school. And for a good 10, 15 years, no kids on the horizon, no plans, nothing at all. And then like somebody flipped a switch. My, my wife got up one day and said, you know, I think I'd like to have kids. And I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> You're the person who really, and she really tends to not like other people's kids. You know, they're <laughs> engaging and they can be interesting or whatever. But she, as soon as she had her own, boom, totally different thing. So it, it was also the gay 90s in San uh -huh. Francisco uh -huh. and where one could walk about and there was a billboard, right? With two women and one woman was pregnant and other woman's hand was on her stomach. And it was an ad for like a health services company. Uh -huh. And that just threw blinders off of people's eyes. They just figured it out. But, oh, we're not restricted from making our own families. We can actually make a family. And in San Francisco and Alameda counties back then, a judge would grant a second parent adoption, which if you lived someplace else in the state, you were out of luck. Mm -hmm. That's not right. And that was not the way sh things should be ever that, you know, live one block over a county line and suddenly you can't have the same access to judicial relief and law the same way. But that's, that's what we did. She got, we did the sperm donor thing. We went to the clinic with the ice chest and joked that if you saw a woman walking with a little ice chest in the Castro, guess where she'd been. <laughs> and were they just people who just donated and volunteered to donate? Like, was it a, a sperm bank or was it? It was a sperm bank. So it was the, the full legal deal so that paternity was severed. It was handled through a doctor. So we tried insemination at home and that didn't work and finally had to get um, have a doctor do the insemination so that, yeah, direct delivery of the sperm to the, to the fertile egg. And that took off. So that was great. And we did that with both kids. Uh, you said you met in high school. Were you guys together mm -hmm. in high school? Uh, yeah. And you were out in high school? Even. Um, not out. No, no. We, did, we didn't come out for <laughs> a good 10 years probably after that. But you were um, together that whole time. That we were together that whole time. You know, wow. but we, we continued with what we planned to do with our lives. We lived in Sacramento. Uh -huh. She was getting a bachelor's degree at um, UC Berkeley and then got a master's at the University of Chicago. And I stayed in Sacramento. And I was working and I loved the work that I was doing and um, got my degree at night. And then I finally had a degree and she was back from Chicago and we met up again. And I mean, we'd been together the whole time, but we converged our households finally in Berkeley. Jamie, yeah, I'm going to give you three good reasons to choose California Cryobank as your sperm bank, besides the you know fact that they're offering our listeners a free level two donor information subscription for 90 days. Are you ready? Sure, but you really don't need to convince me because I already Number used one, them when, okay. California Cryobank <laughs> partners with LGBTQ plus organizations like Family Equality, The Center, Only Human, and Pandora events to sponsor family building events nationwide. Number oh. two, 
California Cryobank was awarded Family Equality's 2019 Corporate Impact Award for their contribution to helping LGBTQ plus families. And I'm not done yet, Jamie. Number three, California Cryobank created a special discounted fertility preservation program for the transgender community. It provides the opportunity to have biological children after transitioning. Okay, those are those are actually really good reasons. I'm glad you read them to me. And now I actually even feel better that I use them to make my kids. Love me them. too, Jamie. Me I know, too. And you I know, know what else? What? California Cryobank maintains the industry's highest quality standards. So you know you're getting good sperm. That's weird for a lesbian to say, but it's true sure when you choose them. And California Cryobank has a diverse selection of over 400 highly screened donors representing over 90 different ancestries. I mean, they've got us covered, Jamie. I know you are really excited. I am. (laughs) I just love that every facet of California Cryobank services is expertly led by experienced and compassionate team members, which includes, but is not limited to, physicians, genetic counselors, lab technicians, donor coordinates, fertility preservation coordinators, and client service consultants. They're just good people, and they're offering us a wonderful gift, Jamie. Yes, it is true. A level two donor subscription is worth 145 bucks. Don't forget that. And that uh-huh. is a big help for us, our families. And they're super helpful. I, have, I had to call them a couple times when I was trying to choose my donor, and they were always available and very kind. I had a really great experience with California Cryo. No joke. And now our listeners can too, Jamie. Yes. All you have to do is go to cryobank.com. You're going to open a free account and you're going to use the code OCT and you're going to activate your free subscription today. Yes, that's cryobank.com, C-R-Y-O-B-A-N-K.com. Make those babies and then tell us about them. Ovaries talk, babies. (laughs) And California cryo too. Yes. (laughs) I have a couple of questions around when in the 90s and were... Like, were other people, I mean, this is like post-Melissa Etheridge and Rosie, or is this around the same time? Like, It's a little pre-Melissa and Rosie. It's pre-the puppy episode on Ellen. Um, <laughs> so, like, for example, we, we lived in Berkeley, and then we decided to look for a house, and we were looking to buy a house in Oakland. And our realtor came in to talk to us at our house in Berkeley, and we had Melissa Etheridge on. We just <laughs> bought her album, her very first album. And our realtor said, who's that? She sounds really familiar. And we showed her and she said, oh, I saw her at a club in Marin like two years ago. And we said, she's going to be a big deal. Mm -hmm. And and she said, we thought then she was going to be a big deal. So that's the era it was. Yeah. Okay. So this was the beginning. Right. You know, 91, 92. But um, so that's why I'm just like, even though there was like that billboard, I'm just surprised that your wife just was like, I guess I was still under the impression that at that time there weren't tons of people who were having kids in that way, like going to a clinics and stuff like that. But so you're saying there's more than I recognized. I think so, because the ad that was, was such a big deal was sort of a culmination. So in 90, I want to say in 93, 94, you could sign up and go to a class at uh, the local women's health services that would show you and your partner how to examine your, uh, your fertile mucus yeah. and, mm-hmm. and use a mirror and a, and a speculum to, to check for the os and whether it was in the right place and, and all of that. And then how, where to, and, you know, where to squirt the sperm and do the whole thing. So imagine a room with, you know, 10, 15 couples and we're all just, you know, on, on towels on the floor with our mirrors. and stuff. I mean, this was, this was the, the era that women were just, we we're going to do it for ourselves. And you're in, it's San Francisco too. It's, it, I think yeah. it also depends on where you are in the world. Yeah. And you just happen to be in this bubble where people were just doing like, 
I, yeah. I was I was a kid hanging out in the Castro during this era. Like everybody was just out in the Castro. There was mm-hmm. no hiding whatsoever. It was just gay as the day is gay. Everybody, uh, yeah. Everybody was out. Everybody was kissing. That was the Castro in the nineties. So yeah, you were yeah. just in a place where it was accessible. I guess it was everywhere. People were making families, and I I don't know if it if lesbians were so intent on it because. We were at not at the tail end. We were in the middle of the AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we saw around us, it, gay men were dying in epic numbers. And so we maybe we gravitated toward this idea that we could make home and hearth and family and have something to hang on to in the midst of all this devastation, which is, I think, we tend to do. And even now, I think people are, are doing that, hoping to, to connect and hunker down and make secure family units. Mm-hmm. You know, the world is... is pretty precarious or it feels that way to me yeah. sometimes. Yeah. So agreed. Yeah. We can confirm it as precarious. We're, yeah. <laughs> we're with you. <laughs> did you have any moment where you were like, I don't want to have kids? Like, did you ever envision yourself as a mom or did you think that door was open or not open or? Uh, well, I thought the door was closed, lacking the requisite other half of the, of the, <laughs> the DNA sequence, but I had never ruled it out. It had never been something that was forefront in my mind or something I, I really gravitated toward as being an essential part of, of what I wanted to do with my life. But as soon as she said it, it was like, okay, fine, you know, we, can, we can do that. But the weirdest thing that happened was our initial plan was that she would have the first kid and I would second parent adopt and I would have the second and she would second parent adopt. And then they would have a genetic link that was double fold, mm-hmm. right? That they would be half siblings in, in, a, in a unique way. So we did that. And then I went to have an, a, you know, my first exam and checkup and they discovered that I had a completely benign cyst that if it had, if I had gotten pregnant, it would have been a massive complication, oh. but they discovered it. And when they said, well, we've got to take that out. And so we did. And when they did that, they also took out an ovary and said, you know, it's going to be very hard for you to conceive. You can do it, but you can't. And I'm like, oh, then she has to have, okay, I'm cool with that. In fact, right. I'm pretty, I'm really cool with that. <laughs> so she got to have both kids and it, and I got to cut the cord in both cases. It was right. still really awesome. And you didn't have to gain weight or be grumpy or <laughs> no. get constipated or well, any of the other things. Uh, well, I, I did that all in sympathy. <laughs> that was so nice of I you. I just think it's just such a unique situation you find yourself in. And a lot of LGBTQ couples find themselves in the situation. Like you have a plan. We're going to do it this way. And then you have your first kid and you realize, oh, you know what? The genetic tie, maybe it doesn't matter as much. This baby's mine. Mm-hmm. And yes, mm-hmm. you did have this plan, but things are not working out as easily as we thought. So, ah, let's go this way. And we still get two kids and I have another uterus right. over here that I can use. And <laughs> exactly. it's so unique to our families and, and how they're made. I just love it. I love how the creative. consciousness of choosing that it was all chosen, even if you adapted and, and rolled with circumstances, you were still choosing to have the family. And some of the choices we made were also based on at the time, of course, we were getting second parent adoptions and supposedly in the law, once an adoption is granted, it takes a massive amount of effort to break an adoption. Right. They are one of the hardest things to undo after they've been granted. But as our lawyer, we had a wonderful lawyer said, who knows what the federal government will do? So she said things like keep the original birth certificate in case there is ever a time in world history where your children will need it, wow. where it, it says father unknown. And instead of saying second parent, you know, and she was looking ahead and I don't think her paranoia was unfounded. No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Even though we got 
we got brand new birth certificates and we've got passports that made everything traveling as a family easier to have a common family name and all those things. So mm. you did do all get the same last name. Is that what you did? Yeah. yeah. And one of the preparations of getting pregnant was that we both changed our last name to the same last name, even though we couldn't get legally married. And it was amazing having the same last name, how differently we were treated everywhere. I can imagine. I've thought about this. I've thought how much easier it could be if we just had the same last name. Why do you think that is? You're you're presumed to be family. Whether people see it as married or not, you're presumed to be family. So like airlines after that never split us up when we were getting seats, you know, getting applying for joint memberships that was often never even asked what the relationship was. Mm. Yeah, the same last name. So the presumption was there. Yeah, it was so funny because my kids are hyphenated. And people constantly ask, who's the mom? Because they're hyphenated with each of our last names. So why would you just assume (laughs) that we're both the mom then? It's a Kelton and it's a Woods. They're Kelton Woods. So why do you have to ask who's the mom? What kind of a question is that even? I know that they really want to know is what's the relationship? Who's whose vagina was responsible? Exactly. That's that's really what they want to say. And, and, you know, at some point, none of your business. Yeah, none of it. Although we'll, we'll tell people, especially if we're, you know, just yakking. We have the constant nature nurture argument. That's nature. Oh, look, that's nurture. That's, you know, I get to say that because, you know, I'm the nurture mom. <laughs> that's fun. Giving birth as a same-sex couple in mm-hmm. the 90s, in the early 90s, I don't know the exact years. Did you, were you, did you face any adversity? Did you, how was it? Absolutely not. It was 95 and 97. So it, it took almost two years to get pregnant with the first one. Mm-hmm. And we had an all-female medical practice. I think it was still Lion Martin at that time but a wonderful group of practitioners, including a midwife. So for one birth, it was the midwife. And the second one, it was the the doctor who we thought of as the scientist (laughs) either way. And as it turned out, the second one, there was a mild complication and I'm watching her, you know, she's like calling for a tray and getting out the sharp implements. And it was like watching a, an ice sculptor work. She was so quick and so fast. And, and, you know, three seconds later, she was like, okay, all stitched. Awesome. <laughs> it's amazing it how good. calm they can be in the room. Like we had something with Maxine and the doctor just kept being like, I think what we found out after was the cord was around her neck and it was knotted. Mm-hmm. And they kept being like, so we're just going to have some extra people in the room. And I was like, okay. And they just kept like saying, all dropping all these things in. Huh? And then we didn't realize. And they're like, well, you're not going to be able to put her on your chest right after she comes out. And I was like, okay. Yeah. I was just like, just get <laughs> it out. And then just hand her to me after. And it was like all of that. They handled it all so well. And I'm so impressed oh, by that when quickly. they do that. Oh, it is when you watch people who really know what they're doing work. It's really quite you're like, okay, there's a reason why they're the expert in this room. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm not going to try to tell them their business. And the midwife was wonderful too. The first delivery was a very long labor. The next morning after delivery, she came in and said to my wife, so you're going to have another one? And to my amazement, <laughs> Maria just went, oh yeah, sure. I'll be fine. <laughs> And the midwife laughed and said, yeah, those delivery hormones haven't, haven't worn off yet Yeah, <laughs> because there is this, this hormonal mm-hmm. flush of euphoria that lasts a good 48 hours after delivery for some women. And she was definitely in it <laughs> because during delivery, those hormones were not present. <laughs> was she yelling at you? <laughs> well, it was a long delivery. <laughs> <laughs> that answer right there is how you remain married 43 years, Jamie. We are doing it wrong. Yeah. I'm going to take some notes. Did you face any issues? Your kids grew up in outside of San Francisco. So it's just like, I have to believe everything. It's like you're in the bubble, like we're in the Brooklyn bubble. They ha- have any issues with two parents that, that were of the same sex? None that they ever really shared. 
I think in certainly in high school, you know, as we all know, kids are kids. If they can find a, a way that they think will intimidate or bully or hurt somebody, they'll say it. So I think that at times, especially my son, because he's the older, uh, may have been teased by his friends, especially when they found out that one of their moms wrote lesbian romance. Right. I can't wait that's to ask whole, that wait, question. That's a whole nother yeah, thing we need to we talk got, we about. We have to hold that, but so, I can't wait to get to that. But yeah, that was, you know, it, at, at times I think he was teased about it a little bit. But he had friends who were either had alternatives, you know, types of parents. Both of our kids went to schools where they're little blonde haired white kids. And they were in the minority, which I think is a great way mm-hmm. to actually adapt to the world the way it truly is. Because yeah. I grew up in an extremely white, you know, we had almost no minority kids in the schools I went to. So they got a completely different start in life. And I think they're both incredibly grounded because of it. That's great. But they also had friends who were gay or were questioning or trying to start gay straight alliances in their schools and things like that. So for both of them, they, they got the full spectrum, I think, of the world. And preparation. Your kids That's like, just great. take one of my mom's books, start here. And then if things, <laughs> if it feels nice, then you maybe want to have another conversation with my mom. <laughs> I told, I told, the, I told them both, you know, you can't read it till you're 30. But, or it, I said, if you do, I just don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I think we have to start talking about it now. I, uh, before, before we get into that, because this is going to be, uh, we, we're going to really delve in. I just want to know, how did you guys handle parenting kids as two gay moms? Like, were you open from the beginning? This is just... Uh, how 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 did you address their origin story with them? We were open from the start. It was the origin story was what it was. And we were so lucky to have a good pediatrician who was, yay, welcome to my practice. And, you know, said, actually, you're my first same sex couple, but let's just go through it. And she was absolutely wonderful as a practitioner. And so every step of the way, we looked for people who were supportive and sought out that avenue. We were out at school presented ourselves at the PTA as, you know, hi, we're their moms and, right. and found that in a lot of cases, you just had to give people the language to use. So we had to say, we're their moms. They have two moms. We're a couple and give them words to use to describe us. And so my partner was mom and I was Moogie, which always made people laugh. And Moogie is Ferengi for mother. If for oh. anybody who's a Star Trek nerd, that's hilarious. I love and that. It, but, and it's great, though. We would have tell their, you know, any of the kids who next door who came over to play, you know, just call me Moogie, ask me if you want anything. And, and so that's it was all, awesome because then everybody can call you that. Anybody can. I'm going to call you Moogie from now on. Just just that's so fine. you know, <laughs> let's get to these lesbian novels that I'm so <laughs> we, excited. We started to we started to talk about this a little bit. But with the pandemic, I was like started rereading some of these old books that I had in the shelf and and then even some new ones. But the point is that at that time, like in the 90s, like I was coming out, I was coming out of college and I was none of my friends were gay. And and there was no I mean, maybe there was like AOL chat rooms, but that was like about it. Mm-hmm. And there was if the only way you found somebody who was gay is if you dropped in like a Melissa Etheridge reference or if you were at a lesbian bar, or you talked a lot about softball. But you and then you were still kind of guessing. You were like, yeah, I play <laughs> softball. And then you waited to see if they answered or what they said. And I was really, 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 and this part's sad, really single and alone. <laughs> and, and those books gave me such comfort. Like, I remember going into a different light bookstore in uh, Chelsea, which was like a for young people who don't know an LGBTQ bookstore in Manhattan. And, mm-hmm. and I, would, I would get like five or six of those books, the Nyad Press books, and just and be like, just burning through them. 
it, it, and they were such a lifeline. And so I'm just, you were just, I was so excited when you said, yes, you wanted to do this. But that was a very long way of just saying hi. It was a beautiful then, way. So tell us, how <laughs> did you wanna, get, I just want to add on to what you said, Ram, because that was beautifully said. You saved a lot of people, I think, with your books. I was so lonely. I'm not even kidding. I was so lonely. And your books just really made me feel less alone. And like I was going to find somebody and there was a relationship I could model because I'd only had one relationship with a woman and it was very messed up, you know, because it was like my first relationship anyway. But so it was like what Jamie said, Jamie, sorry. Yeah. And and for me, (laughs) it was reading those books affirmed for me. Oh, yeah, I think I'm gay. You know, (laughs) which was a question. And so those books helped me find myself. I got incredibly lucky. I mean, I wanted to be a writer pretty much all my life. And I had never, I didn't know there were lesbian books available. And it wasn't until Desert of the Heart, the movie came out. If you remember that, that was my wife's favorite movie. And there, there you have it. And my partner, we saw it at Berkeley at the theater, Shattuck Theaters in Berkeley. And she noticed based on the novel by Jane Rule. And so she went to the Berkeley Public Library and back in the card catalog, looked up Rule, comma, Jane, and there it was, subject, lesbianism, dash, fiction. And she thought, oh, isn't that illegal or something? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> sure enough, went over to the subject cards, lesbian, dash, fiction. And so the very first lesbian novel I read was by Aldridge, comma, Sarah, because it was first. And the next one on the shelf was by Forrest, comma, Catherine V. So She's the second novel I fantastic. read was Curious Wine. Yeah. And I read that twice in one weekend, cried the like the first time through, pretty much all the way through it. And then I thought, I can write this. This Mm. is what I can write. And that's what I did. And I got incredibly lucky that Nyad was already there, was already producing 36 books a year, already had 700 to 1,000 women's bookstores. I mean, just think about that. Yeah. 1,000 women's bookstores in the country. It was a distribution network like you couldn't believe. So I got just lucky. It meant that all of us could go to probably any university town, and there would be a women's bookstore there. And you went in there, and suddenly you were in this alternative world where you could buy something like our bodies ourselves, for mm-hmm. example, and women's, you know, and learn about your body not as defined by, you know, patriarchal medicine at the time. And so I sat down and I wrote my first book, which was in every port, and sent it to Nyad, and they, they, they accepted it. It was just, we were just I, like, what? I, I got incredibly lucky. Well, you didn't get it lucky. You were a good writer. I mean, You're a let's, good writer. you know, let's say that. Well, I learned by osmosis. I read a lot of really good books. <laughs> and I read a lot of romance. I read Harlequin romance all through high school. Mm-hmm. I don't remember many of the heroes, but boy, do I remember the nurses who lived on <laughs> New Zealand sheep stations. They were awesome <laughs> women and they were in control of their destiny and they were smart and principled and they were, you know, they were heroes in their own lives. And I really loved all that. So when I sat down to write, you know, a lesbian romance, that's what I wanted. I wanted to create stories about women who were really, they were, they were present in their own lives and they were trying to do what they could with their world that they had, the one they lived in, which in the late eighties, nineties, wasn't particularly great for gay people. Right. So I wanted to show how they could find, they could find the good and great and make that for themselves. And so those were the stories that I wanted to tell. It's just great. You you had the idea and you did it, which yeah, it's better and than sold I sold your ever first did. book. Just like I wrote I, it and here it is. I know. How long did it take you to write it? I want to say it took me about a year. I know that I was trying to write probably in 87, 88. And my first book was published in 89. So before kids, first book. Before kids. Oh, before kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because I just reread I, or just read 
a Catherine V. Forrest book last week, The Beverly something. The Beverly Malibu. Yes. So I just read The Beverly Malibu and she was touching on like a butch femme thing. And it was Mm -hmm. like, and the way that she touched on it was as if it was like, I mean, it was like this very like kind of like, you know, rigid thing that was happening. And it's like so funny to me how it's not that long after and a lot of that's even gone. Well, there are labels that, you know, they go under definition back, certainly back in the day, there was a a lot of people who are a butcher and femme who ascribe to a very set standard of rules. It was a social dance and a social Mm -hmm. way of recognizing each other, even in you, if you were at a lesbian bar, the butchers and femmes could recognize each other mm-hmm. because yeah. there was a sort of an agreement that you were playing by a certain set of rules. And I think that that's mitigated a lot over the years. And I, I personally, I love butch women. I, I think being a masculine presenting woman in today's world is so hard mm-hmm. that you are challenged from all sides as to whether you have a right to be that. They've always been sort of my little inner hero. I think butchers mm-hmm. have really, they, they were out there at you know, at the Stonewall riots, they were the ones getting arrested for not wearing enough women's clothing. They were the ones who were saying, look, there's more than one way to be a woman in this world. And I'm one of them. So I've always enjoyed writing some butch femme relationships because there is a little of that. A lot of it is softened, sort of mitigated. And the range of what's considered femme, there's a huge range on that now. Yeah, there's there's such a wide spectrum, but there is still the butch femme thing. I mean, people do talk about feeling more femme or feeling more butch mm-hmm. to a certain extent, but agreed. It's um, yeah. really broad. Well, the idea that, that you couldn't change from one to the other or that there wasn't a spectrum, it was more rigid. And yes. I think that spectrum is a better way to describe it now. Yeah. Kate is amazing. I truly felt heard and understood by her. I actually look forward to our sessions and always feel so at peace afterwards. Amy, what are you talking about? We're in the middle of an episode. <laughs> I'm reading the reviews on the BetterHelp website, you know, our favorite place to go for online therapy. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yes. Okay. Now I'm with you. I love BetterHelp. Uh, (laughs) I guess I'm not the only one. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, what? Listen to this one. Caroline listens and parses out the well-intentioned characteristics that cause me the most trouble. She just makes me feel validated by making my challenges seem genuinely human. Love her. I think I need some Caroline in my life. That's what I think I just read. We all do. Listen, beyond Kate and Caroline... I love that BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available and it's available for clients worldwide. So you actually have more choice with BetterHelp than you would with traditional therapy. And you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor and they answer you really promptly. Mm-hmm. It's done. And, and they're committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. So they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. And everybody knows that finding the right person is hard. So I think we should all ask for Caroline. Okay, let's take a break with Caroline. Let's not flood her inbox. No, we should spread the love. Yes. All right, so listen, folks. BetterHelp wants to assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist now. Yes. Visit BetterHelp.com slash OCT. That's BetterHelp. And join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. And remember, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. And if these ovaries could talk, listeners are going to get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash OCT. Woo! OCT, that's the code. Do you feel like it's difficult to keep writing? And like, I feel like the queer community has changed so much. And to stay on the pulse of that with your stories and have them like 
be relevant to younger as well as maybe people my age or older? Good question. It's a huge challenge because I think generations in our community are pretty short. Yeah. The idea now that kids in their teens have mostly grown up in a world where gay marriage is legal, Mm -hmm. that that alone is such a change to your worldview and your psyche that therefore your focus on what it's like to be queer in this world is going to be different. You're Mm going to notice other things that our lack of being able to get married was like a fog over all these other things that were wrong with the world. And once we solve that, then there's all this other stuff underneath to be fixed. And so they go right to that. Mm -hmm. You know, the focus on gender identity got lost a lot when just not getting arrested for dancing with someone who looked like they were the same sex as you was your priority. It was hard then to think about all of the ways that you might have been canceling out people who are in a different spectrum. I felt like I spent a lot of my youth attempting to learn to say the word lesbian without flinching and learning to say it and give the word to other people to use for me and to describe me. And then now, you know, haram of these kids today, they don't even want the word. They don't want it. They They don't want the word lesbian. They don't. We talk about that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. They don't want our potlucks and they don't want our bookstores. They don't want our potlucks. (laughs) What's up with that? You know, these kids today. Lesbian potlucks. Oh, (laughs) you know, I I call myself a lesbian and it took me a lot of work to be okay with that. And still to this day, when I say it to somebody I don't really know, I have a little moment of, oh, how's that going to go down? You know, how's it, that going to go over? Yeah, exactly. And there they are. They, they don't have to struggle for some of the words. They're just they're there out there in the world. They're in the newspaper. They're being said by people on TV all the time. So they don't have to struggle to claim some of the words that we had to fight so hard for. Yeah, I think it was Suzanne Westenhofer who said, you look at the young kids today and they're all cuddling and they're open and they're there are five different ways of being who they are. And you think, could you suffer just a little, right? <laughs> just a little tiny bit? <laughs> right. But that misses the fact that they have a different kind of things that they're suffering from. Right. I, mean, I love that you said that. My kids see racial injustice more clearly than I ever did. Yep. And how, how is it for you with the change in like the, the distribution of books? Or are you just like, I'm here to, I'm a storyteller. I'm here to write the stories. Someone else gets it out there. Like, does the change in, you know, ebooks and audiobooks and everything, which, by the way, I really do want you to make your books into audiobooks. So if you could please get on that, please, please. And thank you. Yeah. Some of the some of them have been recently released in audiobooks, which is great. It's such an it's an undertaking to do them. Yeah. As you know, sound quality is really and hiring the, the right people to be voice performers. And it's not just something any author can take up the mic and read a book. Um, yeah. We're not all good at it. The publishing industry just in general has undergone such a profound change in the last 20 years, you know, I mourn the loss of the bookstores. That was, Mm, it was more than just a place to buy books. It was a real community place. And yet online things have started to replace them more robustly and more, more and more that you can find things online that have a feel of that connection of references and where people can talk about word of mouth about books, which is still the best way to learn about books. Is someone telling you about a book? You know, that there's essentially a monopoly now in book distribution through Amazon and that they, they call most of the shots in the way that books are marketed, the way they're presented to the public, the way they get categorized, what kind of signposts they're available to readers to help find them. Discovery is the hardest part, I think. Discovery is the hardest part. If you, if you go to any search engine, you type in lesbian fiction, I really actually kind of don't recommend that you do that. You're going to get a lot of things yeah, that are not lesbian fiction and some that might be quite upsetting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Depending right. on your particular thing. <laughs> and at Amazon, it's also still hit and miss that way when you type in lesbian, what you get is actually for women loving women. 
you know, yeah. it may not be for that audience at all. And there's, you know, huge debates about whether that's the whole goal. As a woman loving woman, I write for women loving women. That's my intended audience. I'm trying to reflect their lives. I'm trying to to mirror them so that they see themselves in books and that they can identify with them. And you asked about whether age was was hard getting, you know, I'm getting older and readers, obviously, there's a lot of younger ones. It is hard to keep up with, you know, those generations click really quick. Yeah. And what was what was okay to say three years ago may not be okay today. Right. What are you working on right now? Can you share what you're working on right now? I'm working on a book called Simply the Best. And you should hear Tina Turner. I did. <laughs> And if, are you familiar with the movie called Born Yesterday? Uh, no. I, 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 I highly, highly recommend it. It's a little, you know, America rah-rah patriotism in the middle, but it was made in the 40s. It's in black and white. William Holden, Judy Holliday, Broderick Crawford. He's a reporter. She's the quintessential dumb blonde. The reporter arrives to do a story on the mob boss and relationship ensues between the blonde and the reporter with the mob boss present. So you've got this interesting triangle. That's uh-huh. sort of my premise. It's not a mob boss set in LA, the La La of La La Land. Uh-huh. It's in Beverly Hills, Hollywood sort of setting. Okay. And the company is one of those companies that sells everything for women to empower them, including yoni eggs, where you put a rock uh-huh. in your vagina and it supposedly makes it healthier. Yes. Like vaginas aren't already perfect. <laughs> so the reporter comes and is looking at this company and going, what? This is just a bunch of new age hooey that's being sold here in Beverly Hills, the fakest of fake places on the planet. And I'm being assigned to this personal assistant who probably doesn't have a brain in her head. Well, the reporter is quite wrong on that. And the the other thing that I found, especially in writing in the pandemic, was that I think a lot of us are feeling kind of broken Mm -hmm. and we don't, at sometimes then hopeless, Mm -hmm. we're not sure if the world's going to heal. And so my reporter character is feeling that, that kind of broken, I don't know how to heal myself. I don't know how to believe in anything right now. Mm And I believe that, you know, love can fix a lot of things. It doesn't fix everything. But if you have it, it's easier to fix the other things in your life. Ugh. Well, will you tell people where to get your books and all of that jazz? My publisher is Bella Books. And um, Bella Books also runs a distribution center. So they represent publishers of all kinds in the LGBT, particularly the L and uh, B area. And if you go to their website in order. That's always closest to the source, which means, and it's true everywhere, the closer you order to the source of the goods, the more money goes to the people who made it. Mm -hmm. But of course you can buy at Amazon, you can buy at Kobo, Barnes and Noble, print copies are available as well as eBooks. And there's my own website. You can find out tons more about me at callmaker.com, book samples. There's some free books to pick up, free reads to, to download. Then my various philosophies of life are there. For anyone who wants to indulge themselves. Yes, you've got a whole blog there. <laughs> mm-hmm, I do. Amazing. I mean, you're just you're just doing it all. It, it's been such a joy to talk to you. Absolutely. Oh, this is like, great. Ho- like, I feel hopeful. I know. <laughs> <laughs> the more we talk among each other, we realize we're not alone. It's always been true, and it is still true. The more we know that there are people who feel like we do and that our goal together is to keep each other safe and lift each other up. Yeah. Yes. You know, we'll, we'll get through it. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Uh, well, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Oh, you're entirely welcome. That was everything I hoped it would be and so much more. <laughs> She's really great. Isn't she delightful? She's yeah. so smart too. I, I just I loved her. Oh, but I have to share this with everybody. So after the interview, because we, we were going to send her a copy of our book, you know, just because oh, I was like, this I, is I, the best. we got to send Karen Kelmaker a copy of our book. Of course. And so she emailed right back and she said, 
and this is her email. I had a great time. Thank you both. Exclamation part. Thank you, Karen. My wife just asked me what I was up to and I explained and she promptly went into her office and emerged with a copy of your book. She hasn't started it yet, but it seemed like stories and history she knew we would both enjoy. So she ordered it. I'm looking forward to reading it. How Come amazing. on, Jamie. How Come amazing. On. How amazing. I, I mean, just that's loved am- that. That's great. God, that's I know. Amazing. I was like, Karen Kelmaker had our book in her house. Like, that made me so happy. It's huge. Oh, anyway, Ugh. go get that book. If these ovaries could talk the things we've learned about making LGBTQ family, it's available at all major retailers. And if you want to buy locally, you're going to check IndieBound. Yep. And you can get the audiobook too. It's available on Amazon and iTunes. And then go ahead and rate and review it on Amazon or Goodreads. Let's keep this conversation going and join us on social ovaries talk on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If these ovaries could talk on YouTube and on YouTube, you're going to see recordings of our live streams, which we do each week on Facebook and YouTube at 4 p.m. Eastern on Thursdays. Mm -hmm. And you can support our podcast and join our community on Patreon, patreon.com slash ovaries talk. Don't forget you get bonus content. Yeah. And I like to call it Patreon, but you can call it whatever you want. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's it, huh? I guess so. Except we want to say a big thank you to shout out to our sponsors, BetterHelp and Generate Life Sciences. And a big thank you to all of you who are already Patreons, as Jamie says, for helping us make this show. We thank you. Whatever you call yourself, Patreon or Patreon, we thank you. Or just your own names. We totally get that, too. (laughs) Thank you so much. And thanks for tuning in again. We love you guys. We're so glad we have this community of beautiful people. And I'd also, I also want to say, we didn't say this at the top. Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. It's March. It's Women's History Month. And we just want to stress that all women are women, trans women included. So a special Women's History Month to all the trans women who are being themselves. In our lives. And we love you. Yes. Out there in the world. We love you all. All right. On that note, eggs. Ovaries. Female empowerment. Out. out. I don't know where I went with that. I don't either. (laughs) (laughs) If these ovaries could talk, they would say. Eggs, ovaries, out.